Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 10, Beauty is a Dirty Business. After graduation, I got a job as a stylist in a small salon in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Within months, I began to wonder if I had chosen the right career path. The oily scalps flaking with dandruff that I so frequently had to touch were beginning to nauseate me, and I was growing weary of clients who never seemed satisfied with their hairstyles. I found my coworkers to be boring, shallow, and catty. Silly, southern beauty queens who caked on the makeup, wore crosses around their necks, and painted their fingernails sex pot red. One typically tedious day, after hours of inconsequential conversations and a slight buzz from perm solution, a very irate woman came into the shop and accused the owner, a man who looked like Steve Perry from Journey, of recording their sex acts on a video camera. She screamed and yelled and went crazy with violence. As her rage intensified, it became apparent that the owner was also sleeping with the other hairdressers, including me. All hell broke loose, and the little beauty parlor, which on most days was just boring, turned into a scene from an old Western movie. Accusations with fists behind them went flying, and the screeching women with their hair so close to God hurled righteous indignations at each other and the owner. The customers took refuge against the farthest wall of the salon until someone picked up a chair and threw it through the floor-to-ceiling plate glass window. The loud and cacophonous sound of breaking glass spurred the customers to make a run for it, hands on heads with plastic capes a-flapping in the wind. I didn't get involved in the fight. I just watched from the sidelines, hiding behind the customers. I considered my sexual activity with the owner to be a secret, and I was going to keep it that way. I didn't want to add to this pile of shit and possibly get myself punched out. I knew the owner was a jive-ass turkey, but he was fun, and I liked him. I also knew something about the recordings, but I thought they were audio, not video. And in my mind, it was kinky for sure, but seemed harmless and much less bizarre to me than the fact that he ironed his jeans. I didn't wait for the police, and I wasn't interested in how it all shook out. My question had been answered. Was this the career for me? 
No. The only thing I wanted was to get away. So quiet like a mouse, trying to be invisible, I gathered all my belongings, tiptoed over the shattered glass, and never returned to beauty. As I sit by the spot that lingers with me, All gone. Unemployed and disillusioned, and at a time when I needed them most, the quaaludes and my money were gone. Word on the street was that the quaaludes had been outlawed and druggies everywhere were outraged. Around the same time, a conspiracy was brewing about a new drug that was destroying the inner city ghettos. The drug was crack cocaine, and everyone believed that the government was pumping it into targeted neighborhoods. The black neighborhoods. In order to keep the people down and out and fighting amongst themselves. No one doubted it, since crack seemed to materialize out of thin air and was hitting hard and heavy with no signs of stopping. The government didn't seem to give one shit about the psycho-violence that came addict. with a crack come down. But what we considered to be the harmless, happy quaaludes had to go. God forbid a drug addict should be happy, peaceful, and content. With my inheritance gone, I felt desperate. I didn't know shit about money, because up until now it had been growing on trees. I suffered separation anxiety and I missed my monthly allowance, and the bulging wallet that was always stuffed with tens and twenties and the occasional hundred dollar bill. The only asset I had left was Gorton's house, the Heartbreak Hotel. And, in the dumbest move of a lifetime, mine or anyone else's, I sold it for a couple thousand dollars. Safe and sound? My adventures into beauty and the gay subculture had darkened me, so I ran back home to Lil. But home wasn't quite like I remembered. Before I could comprehend the complete picture of what had changed, Lil and I did manage to have a few brief moments reminiscent of our sweet and silly adolescence. The best of all being the night I joined her and Gary on a job cleaning offices.
We walked into a nondescript building and began emptying small gray trash barrels that blended monotonously into the beige Berber carpet, while overhead, the fluorescent lights hummed endlessly to the tune of our boredom. We vacuumed our way down the hallway that led to a special room that had a key of its own. Gary swung the door open, switched on the light, and with jaws dropping, eyes widening, and bodies frozen with delight, we marveled at a magnificent room plastered with Rolling Stones posters and big lip memorabilia. Holy fucking shit, what the hell is this? We were so stunned that we couldn't lift a rag to dust. Gary tried to bring us back to focus, but for Lil and I, that wasn't an option, and we began to snoop. We contemplated the mystery of who this guy was, a fan, or possibly the lawyer who got Keith out of jail in Fordyce. I suspected it was the lawyer, so I scanned the room for something, anything, I didn't know what and then my eyes spotted the Rolodex sitting on a large mahogany desk. I scrolled through the mini index cards very slowly, sensing a life change. And sure enough, there it was. Mick Jagger's phone number. Oh no, now what? We were panicked, and it took several days of, you call, no you call. I know what, we'll get so-and-so to call. But finally, I got the nerve to dial the number. I stood there shaken as my body twitched with nerves. What if he answers? What do I do? What do I say? Luckily, I got the answering machine, which talked to me in the indisputable voice of Mick Jagger. The first couple of times I hung up, but then I left the message. Hey Mick, it's Chris. Give me a call. We dialed that number over a million times so that all our friends could hear Mick's mundane and perfunctory outgoing message. No Mickisms, just Mick getting the job done, which made him all the more sexy and accessible. I did get a call back, but not from Mick. It was from a lawyer who ordered me to cease and desist. The guy scared the hell out of me. He acted like this was a major crime, which he did not think was cute or funny. He told me that I was in serious trouble and that he would talk to his clients and get back to me. The idea that some lawyer was talking to the Rolling Stones about me was more incredible than frightening. But I did love the Stones, and I didn't want them to throw me in jail, so I didn't call the number anymore, and I never heard back from the lawyer. If Lil and Gary's lives had been as innocent as speed dialing Mick Jagger's phone number, then I would have truly been home, safe and sound. 
but it wasn't. They had a new pastime, which I found frightening and ridiculous. Lil and Gary were shooting up drugs. How they got themselves into that? I didn't know. What I did know was that it was stupid and gross, and they chose it over me. And once again in our friendship, I was alone again, naturally. Genesis. My two best friends had their preoccupation, but thank you, life, I had mine. I was in love, and it happened unexpectedly at a restaurant called JoJo's. The waiter came to our table of six and took everyone's order without using a pad or a pencil. When all the food arrived correctly, it was obvious that this man was a genius. I was so impressed with him that I took a closer look. He wasn't the kind of handsome that girls swoon over, nor did he have the body type that gets picked first for kickball. He was a bit pale and doughy, and he had no muscle mass whatsoever. What he did have, sitting under his dark, ruffled mess of hair was an impish, intelligent, and sparingly used grin. He looked like what he was, a nerd, and I was smitten. Joe was an engineering student who listened to smart boy bands like Genesis, Brian Eno, and King Crimson, and obviously not only played Dungeons and Dragons, but was the dungeon master. I got myself invited to the games and would sit for one magical long-ass hour after the other, just soaking up all that was Joe. He ignored me, but that didn't matter. I loved every nerdy thing about him, and I took it upon myself to chase him, because he was a nerd. I assumed that he had little confidence and no skill in the pursuit of love, so I was going to help him. It never occurred to me that he wasn't the least bit interested in me. I thought he was just shy and needed a nudge. This went on for quite some time, and I pursued him with the same determination that my mother had with my father in her lifetime before me. Never giving up and never giving in, I called him one night from a payphone located on a dark and empty street. I stood there alone in the quiet, my heart pacing with anticipation 
as I waited to hear his voice. With the oblivion of a love-struck teen, I let the phone ring for what felt like hours. When he finally answered, his tone was curt and cold, verging on annoyed. He used no imagination in telling me that he had zero interest in me and there was not a chance in hell that was ever going to change. In a much kinder tone, he suggested that I really shouldn't call him anymore. The blow-off burned deep. It singed and scalded my heart. And my jaw clenched as I vacillated between the whimper of a wounded cub and the vengeance of a wild animal. Realizing that the elusive fairy tale of love and comfort was a cruel joke, my soul exploded with a fuck you that saturated the dead-end street I stood on, all alone at this payphone. In ravaged and wrecking ball pain, I barreled into Lil and Gary's house with not a word. Only eyes that welled with anger, emptiness, and despair. I sat down hard on a kitchen chair trying to break it because I didn't want my tears to drown out my anger or my resolve. Better to be mad than sad. I rolled up my sleeve, stuck out my arm, and told Gary to hit me. Remember my friend. Remember my friend. Gary wasn't a tall guy, but he was muscular, which seemed out of step with the quiet and graceful way he moved his body. Without a word, a smirking, slightly guilty, yet endearing Cajun grin flashed across his face. He wrapped a rubber tie around my upper arm and thumped my bulging vein with his thumb and index finger. I looked away, but I heard him blow on the vein to distract me, and with great precision and skill, he stuck the needle into my arm. It was painless and I was surprised by my reaction to Gary's gentle touch. I felt taken care of and attended to, but more importantly, back on track with my two best friends. Now I was home. It only took a second before a warm, loving rush spread through my body. My head exploded into tiny little effervescent bubbles of happiness and joy, and my mind felt empty and free. I leaned way back in the chair as my emotions adjusted to their rightful place of pure, 
unadulterated bliss. Swimming through my bloodstream was a potion that had just righted all the wrongs of a no-good life. Waves of cascading gratitude pulsated from head to tummy to toes, and I ran to the bathroom to throw up. No more Joe, no more Martha, no more bullshit. <laughs>